Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, uh, the God who loves the whole world so much that you'd send Jesus, that anyone who believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. Uh, we thank you for this story, this, uh, this passage today that reminds us that you are a God who loves to save people and that you will do whatever it takes uh, to bring in your children from every t tribe and nation and tongue. Uh, we pray that we would catch more of who you are and uh, who you would have us be. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's nothing like a brush with death to get your attention, to clarify your priorities. Uh, it's the biggest wake-up call there is. Uh, I know a few of you have faced a brush with death recently. Maybe this global pandemic will be the wake-up call that our world needs. Perhaps it'll make people take a fresh look at their life, at their choices, their priorities, make them realise they're not masters of their own destiny. Perhaps we'll see some changes in how people approach life, uh, how they approach one another, how they relate to God. Uh, that's certainly what I'm praying uh, through this situation. A brush with death and a wake-up call. It's what we see in the book of Jonah. In fact, we see it twice. Uh, first, Jonah himself experiences it. Chapter 2, we saw it last week. He's thrown overboard into the stormy sea. He's sinking like a stone and he finally turns to God. Save me, God. Rescue me. And God does. Amazingly, mercifully, he saves him from death. Miraculously, a giant fish swallows him. And somehow, Jonah is alive. And he's grateful. And he wants to head to the temple in Jerusalem to offer his sacrifice. And chapter 2 finishes with God causing the fish to vomit Jonah up. And that's where we take up the story in chapter 3. Jonah's on dry land. He's safe and sound, perhaps trying to get his bearings about what direction Jerusalem is so he can head there to offer his sacrifice. But it's there the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Same as before, verse 2, almost exactly the same words as chapter 1. Same destination, same job, same message. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Call out to it. But remember, the only calling out that Jonah has agreed to do so far is as he's sinking down under the ocean, calling out to God in prayer to save himself. The last time Jonah heard the command, Jonah disobeyed. He ran away. But now he's had a brush with death. He's had the wake-up call. So he's learned his lesson. He's not going to make that mistake again. So this time, verse 3, Jonah obeys the word of the Lord. But Jonah's not the only one who has a near-death experience, because the Ninevites do as well. They get their wake-up call. Because when Jonah eventually makes it to Nineveh, he gives them God's message. And it's pretty simple and straight to the point. Do you see it there in verse 4? 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. It's even more stark in Hebrew. It's five words in Hebrew. 
Back in chapter 1, God's command had been, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Is that what Jonah's done? Did he preach more than these uh, five words? If not, should he have preached more than this? We're left with lots of questions as we read the description. It would have taken Jonah perhaps a month or two to travel to Nineveh from the shores of the Mediterranean up to uh, Assyria. Plenty of time to, to work up a wonderful evangelistic sermon finely crafted, clear, comprehensive, engaging, powerful, contextualised. But the best he can do is 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. It's a message that nothing more, nothing less than a death sentence. He's certainly preaching against Nineveh, like God said, but there's no two ways to live. There's no message of hope or forgiveness. There's no, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. No radical surgery to choose. No experimental drugs to try. It's a death sentence. There's no mention of the problem, their sin. There's not even any mention of the God who will bring the judgment. Just a death sentence, 40 more days, then judgment. What do you do with a message like that? It's the decision patients who are given only weeks to live have to make. When the doctor says, I'm sorry, there's nothing more I can do, you've got a month or two. What do they do? Do you just give up and and withdraw? Do you sit in a corner and feel sorry for yourself? Just fade away? Or do you get out there and enjoy your time? Do you make the most of it? And how do you make the most of your time? Do you satisfy yourself? Do you you max out the credit card? Eat, drink and be merry? Work through the items on your bucket list? Or do you do something bigger and better? Do you leave a legacy behind? Do you set up a charitable trust? Or do you just gather your family around you and enjoy the time you have left? The historian Thucydides uh, records that in 430 BC a terrible plague hit the city of Athens. It was less than 200 years later than Jonah and Nineveh. Uh, Greece was the equivalent world superpower of its day. Athens was the capital of the Greek Empire. And in this city, people were facing death every day. What was their response? Well, Thucydides reports that they committed every horrible crime and engaged in every lustful pleasure they could find. They believed that life was short, so they'd never have to pay the penalty. It was anarchy. And perhaps that's what we'd expect from the Ninevites. But it didn't happen like that. Because Jonah's message, brief as it was, it cuts them to the core. It convicted them, despite the lack of conviction from Jonah himself, despite his impure motives, his lack of prayer, despite his lack of effort. Did you notice? It's a city that takes three days to travel through. 
Verse 4, Jonah sets foot into the gates on the first day he delivers his message and that's all we hear. But that message, limited as it was, it worked. The people took his words as if they were words from the mouth of God. Even though Jonah had never mentioned God. Did you notice verse 5? The Ninevites believed who? They believed God. Now that explains the powerful effect because it was God's spirit who worked through Jonah's efforts to convict the people. And the people did something about it. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Jonah delivers his bare message to whoever happened to be listening there on that street corner and the news spreads like wildfire. This is the wake-up call they need. One person tells two who tells four and eight and sixteen. And before long the news reaches the king. In verse six, he rises from his throne. And if we just stop there for a moment and, and we expect a, an announcement from the king, we expect a pronouncement of aggressive independence, maybe the sentence of death for the messenger. After all, this is the king of the Assyrians, uh, the world's first superpower. He's the leader of a cruel, wicked, dominant nation. But no, he too is cut to the core. He gets up to go down. He takes off his royal robes, the symbol of his sovereignty, and he, and he picks up sackcloth instead. And then he sits down in the dust. But that's not all. He issues a command for everyone else to do the same. Verse 7, By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Everyone's to fast, even the animals. He even wants the animals wearing sackcloth, just as the king uh, is doing. The picture is of the whole city mourning for their sin, from the top of society to the bottom. But not just mourning, pleading with God to change his mind. Verse 8, let everyone call urgently to God. There's that word again. The very thing Jonah's been reluctant to do, to call out. And yet it's the first thing the king wants people to do. And he goes further than Jonah does. He doesn't just call out to God, he repents. And he calls on the whole city to repent. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Turn from their wickedness. That word turn, it, it's used all the way through the Old Testament for repentance. Stop. Stop going in one direction. Turn around and head in the other. Show your change of heart with a change of behaviour. And just perhaps, he thinks, there's a chance they can convince God to change his mind. Uh, verse 9, the king continues, Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. In the face of it, it's wishful thinking. After all, there's nothing but misery in Jonah's message. There's no hope. 
It's 100% definite destruction. 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. But who knows, he thinks. We're desperate. What have we got to lose? And yet if you think about it, perhaps there is some hope. Because if God really did send Jonah, like he said, if God's gone to the trouble of dragging Jonah all the way from where he was to Nineveh, then just perhaps God's expecting some response from the Ninevites. If he really was determined to destroy them, then why warn them? And so the king thinks we've got nothing to lose. Everyone, animals included, fast, mourn, pray, repent. And who knows? Maybe, just maybe, God might show compassion and turn from his anger. They heard the message, they believed it, but that's not all. Belief produced a change of heart and that conviction was seen in their sorrow. But, but more than sorrow, sorrow has to stir you to action. There are many people caught up in all sorts of sins, in, in drug addiction or sexual immorality or, or gambling who are miserable. They're full of sorrow, but it's often self-pity which is a long way from repentance. Now, repentance is what we see here. It's, it's true repentant sorrow because it leads to action. The external actions, there's the sackcloth and the ashes and the fasting. But more than that, the king calls them to pray, to plead their case before God. But they don't just leave it with God. They give up their evil ways. They turn from their violence. There's an internal change that accompanies their prayer. That's what godly sorrow does. True repentance is seen in a changed life. What about you? If you're stuck in some sin that's just got a hold of you and you can't seem to beat it, you don't know where to turn, you've repented again and again, but there's no change then let me ask, what actions have you done that show that repentance? Jesus said if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's advocating drastic action. And the more lingering a sin is, the more drastic the action that's required. Have you removed yourself from the temptation? It might mean leaving your job, getting another job. It might mean selling that boat, disconnecting the internet, finding some new friends, moving house. Remove yourself from the temptation. And who have you called in to help you? Who, who have you told about your struggle? Who keeps you accountable and, and prays with you? What changes have you made to your surroundings, to your habits, to those triggers? Uh, that make it difficult for you, that cause you to stumble. True repentance is seen in action. Well, what does God think of all this? What does he think of the Ninevites' actions? He's the one they've been doing it all for. Have they done enough? Were their prayers earnest enough? Was their repentance real? Well, verse 10 tells us that God does take notice. He sees their actions, the sackcloth, the fasting. He hears their prayers. 
He sees all the animals walking around in sackcloth. But more more important, he sees their changed hearts. He sees genuine, repentant, turned around lives. That's something you can't manufacture or pretend. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and he did not bring upon them the destruction he threatened. The king had hoped that if the people turned, that God might turn. And God did. His anger replaced with forgiveness and compassion. His judgment replaced with mercy. Now, of course, that's what God had wanted to do all along. The whole reason he he called Jonah and brought him from Israel in the first place was that so the Ninevites might turn and be forgiven. It's what he wants. It's uh, It's what he always wants for people. His desire. 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us that God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Uh, That's his desire. He longs for people to recognise him. And so he sent not only Jonah, but Jesus. He gave us his Bible, that we might hear his word and be convicted. And then that conviction would lead to sorrow, and that sorrow would lead to action, to a repentance, to a turning around. God wants us to repent the way the Ninevites did. Is that something you're doing? It's something you don't do just once. It's something that we keep doing. You see, the original audience for the book of Jonah was the the nation of Israel. Jonah was a wake-up call for Israel. Israel were a people who'd grown cold to God. For generations they'd heard the warnings, they'd listened to the prophets, they'd read the book, they'd repented and sacrificed again and again, but they'd wandered away. The prophet Amos lived around the same time as Jonah and he describes how wicked and corrupt Israel had become. They were caught up in sexual immorality. They abused the poor and the widows. They denied justice to the oppressed. There were greed and self-centeredness all the way through Jewish society. And, And through the book of Jonah, God is saying to them, Israel... That's what your repentance needs to look like. It needs to look like Nineveh. It's got to look like something. Like the king and his people learn from Nineveh. It would be a staggering message. Their repentance needed to be like Nineveh, to be wholehearted and sorrowful and prayerful. God says, that's what I'm after. If they can do it, how much more can you do it? After all, Nineveh didn't know the covenant God of Israel. They had none of the privileges that Israel had. Do you remember the king's words? Who knows? God might turn. But you see, Israel did know. They did know the God who was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. 
Or let's go one step further. There's us. We know even better than Israel, better than Nineveh, because we know God's Son. We know Jesus. We've seen the compassion and the love and the forgiveness and the mercy and the patience of God in the person of Jesus. We know the promises of verses like Romans 8.32. God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Or a bit further down in Romans 8.38. I'm convinced that neither death, life, angels, demons, the present, the future, nor any powers, height, depth, anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know the love of God in Jesus. The king of Nineveh said, who knows? But we know. Do we recognise our sin the way Nineveh did? Are we convicted and sorrowful like Nineveh? Does it lead to action? Are there real changes that show the genuineness of our repentance? Or is it all just words? Is it all just staying where we are? But not only that, the message of Jonah is good news for us as we tell that message to people. Because if God can turn around the king of Nineveh, then he can reach anyone. The wickedest king, the, the wicked king of the most wicked empire. If he can turn him around, well, then the good news about Jesus can change the high court judge or the prostitute. The good news of Jesus can turn around the university academic or the bikey, the radical feminist a broken, depressed, single mum. You see, there's no one beyond God's reach. And what's more, God brought about that radical repentance using Jonah. So, so if God can use Jonah to achieve his salvation purposes, then, well, God can use anyone. He, he can even use me and you. If God can bring about such a powerful change in Nineveh using Jonah's simple message, then he can do something with my words. If you think about it, there are always plenty of opportunities for us to speak to our friends about God and his salvation message, our workmates, our family, our neighbours. And if the book of Jonah teaches us anything, it's this. God wants to show those people mercy more than you want to speak to them. God wants to show them mercy even more than you want to speak to them. So look for those opportunities. Pray for them to happen. Pray that you'll have the courage and the wisdom to take the opportunities. Let's not be comfortable like Jonah, like Israel. Let's not take God's mercy for granted like Israel. Let's remember the mercy that God's shown us in Jesus and let's pass it on. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father,
Help us to understand the love that you have for all people. Uh, let it change us. Let it produce in us a repentance of changed lives. We pray that the love you have for all nations uh, would be seen in you calling them to yourself. And we pray, dear God, that you might use us as part of your purposes, just as you use Jonah, for your honour and glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.